You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Back in episodes 36 and 37, released at the start of 2017, I discussed the four murders associated with the Oakland County child killer. These killings, which took place between 1976 and 1977, changed childhood for thousands of kids living in Oakland County. As I've researched the murders, I was struck by how many other children were killed in the area in the years before and after the time frame associated with this killer, or killers. I use the plural because I am no longer convinced that one person was responsible for the deaths of Mark Stebbins, Jill Robinson, Christine Mihalik, and Timothy King. There is evidence connecting the deaths of Stebbins and King, but what about the girls? Jill and Christine did not suffer the same fate as the boys while they were held captive. And three of the four victims share smothering as a cause of death, but Jill Robinson was shot in the face at close range. When you look at other children from the area who were taken or murdered between 1972 and 1979, the numbers are sobering. Donna Sarah. Cynthia Cadju, Joan Wagner, Jane Allen, Kimberly King, George Kennedy Jr., Jody Howes, Keith Arnold, Gerald Kraft, and Sheila Schrock. Some of these cases, Joan Wagner, Jody Howes, Sheila Schrock, they're solved. Others, like Kimberly King and Jane Allen, are not. Today, we're looking at three murders that occurred in North Oakland County, there is no official link to the Oakland County child killer, but as you hear about three murders, two perpetrators, and the community's reaction, you may develop your own theories or decide that the county got it right. That is up to you. May of 1975 was a dark time, and before we explore it, let's have a word from our sponsor. This October, Blue Apron is celebrating its fifth anniversary by bringing back its top 20 recipes from the last five years, as picked by you, the Blue Apron community. Your favorites are back on the menu for a limited time. Now, I'm not a seasoned chef, but with easy-to-follow recipes, fresh, pre-portioned ingredients from local farms, fisheries, and ranches across the United States, I can create a flavorful meal at home in 40 minutes or less. Also, Blue Apron's freshness guarantee means that every ingredient arrives ready to cook, or they'll make it right. Check out this week's menu and get $30 off your first meal with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash already gone. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create a home-cooked meal with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Visit blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now, listeners, during this episode, you may hear me using outdated terms, words and phrases that were commonly accepted as appropriate during the 1970s. This is to help you get a look at how people viewed things and the language they used to describe them 40 years ago. I am attempting to balance a historic picture with respect for the people involved in the case. The image of two boys carrying fishing gear through the woods on a sunny afternoon as they make their way to a small lake or river, it's a popular American image, 
We see those two boys and their carefree afternoon at the edge of the water as wholesome, enduring, a snapshot of boyhood. We know those boys. We see some of our young selves within them, basking in the promise of a sunny day paired with the innocence of youth. Mother's Day weekend, 1975. Two boys, cousins, Scott Hardy and Mark Mellendorf, 11 and 12 years old, respectively. They've been looking forward to a weekend of camping, hanging out in the woods, fishing, and basically enjoying being young and having a bit of freedom while their families visit. Scott Hardy lived in Port Huron, near the St. Clair River, at the foot of Lake Huron, and just across the water from Ontario, Canada. Scott's parents pulled him out of school early that day to get a jump on their weekend. Scott's mother, Linda Hardy, was the sister of Gerald Mellendorf, and the Hardy and Mellendorf families planned a fun weekend of camping, both to celebrate Mother's Day and kick off the summer a little bit early. In 1975, Hadley was rural, without much development. The town is edged by the Ortonville Recreation Area, which begins in Oakland County and ventures north into Lapeer. Toady Lake is part of the Ortonville Recreation Area. There is a gravel road, Toady Lake Road, providing drivers with easy access to the lake. While the boys walk to the lake from the Mellendorf home, the area is open to the public via the roadway. It was mid-afternoon when the two gathered fishing poles, a tackle box, and headed out. They were expected back by 5.30 p.m. as the two families planned to drive up north that evening. Around 6.30, the boys were seen by a caretaker at a nearby camp. When 7 o'clock arrives, there is no sign of the boys. Their parents weren't too worried. Boys and men who are fishing, they tend to lose track of time. Mark's older brother, 13-year-old Neil, he's sent out to retrieve them. When he returns home without finding them, Mark's father, Gerald, is concerned, and he gets in his car and drives to the lake. At 10 p.m., with no sign of the two boys, the police are called. I mentioned that this is a rural area. Hadley and Goodrich are small towns, and several people came out to help look for the boys. Searchers walk the woods and call their names until the wee hours of the night. Helicopters equipped with spotlights are sent up to assist in the search. Law enforcement from several agencies and multiple counties help out. It's around 3 a.m. when they give up, determined to search again at daybreak. On the morning of Saturday, May 10th, more than 50 volunteers joined police from five departments to look for the children. Richmond Township Officer Edward Stevenson brings his bloodhound, Jack, to the Mellendorf home. Jack is given sheets from Mark Mellendorf's bed to get a scent, and the two are on their way. It's 8.30 a.m. when the search comes to a horrifying and tragic conclusion. Jack tracked directly to the southeast end of the lake, about a mile from the Mellendorf home. First, he finds a pair of pants, then the bodies. Both boys are dead. Mark's body is suspended in a tree, hanging by his t-shirt. More than a dozen yards away, they find the small body of Scott Hardy, he is partially submerged, his knees and arms poking out of the springy muck at the southeast edge of the lake. It's clear that this was no accident, that someone killed the boys and left them there. Missing from the scene are two fishing poles and a tackle box. As police comb the area near where the bodies were discovered, they find a receipt from a store on the north side of Flint. Witnesses report a 
black and red late-model Chevrolet, possibly an Impala, as being at the lake that evening. Law enforcement keeps an eye out for the vehicle. Police believe that the people in that car hold the key to this horrific double murder. Sunday, May 11th, is Mother's Day. Mark and Scott's mothers spend the day planning a funeral service for their boys. The two families don't grieve alone. The community rallies around them, lending their love and support. Flowers, food, and words of comfort arrive, sent by friends and community members who wish to console the families. But the community rumor mill has gone into overdrive. While the deaths of the boys should be terrible enough, the rumor mill contributes gruesome details to the deaths, causing a great deal of anxiety and fear in the community. On Wednesday, May 14th, funeral services are held at the Baird-Newton Funeral Home on Liberty Street in Lapeer. The two boys have a joint service. There is a police presence at the funeral. Could their killer also be in attendance? By May 16th, a reward fund is established at the Lapeer County Bank and Trust. Their goal is a $10,000 reward. They will be halfway to that dollar amount before the month is over. The week of May 20th, Flint police locate the red and black Chevy and its owner, Robert Hughes. Hughes was also at Toady Lake on May 9th and tells police who he was at the lake with. Now the police have a name. Hughes and his companions in the vehicle tell police that a kid they know from the neighborhood came along on the May 9th fishing trip, but didn't bring any gear. They saw him speaking to two young white boys and later using their equipment to fish. The suspect? 17-year-old Kenneth Nard of Flint. The newspaper reported that he was arrested, quote, in his North Flint ghetto home where the illiterate Nard lived with his mother. Nard is taken into custody by Flint police around 8.30 p.m. He is transported to the Flint Police Department where he is placed in a detention cell. At 1.30 a.m., he is picked up by the Lapeer County Sheriff. It's 2.30 in the morning when he's finally read his Miranda rights. During the transfer to Lapeer County, Nard is seated in the back of a police cruiser with Thomas Fishhaber, director of the Lapeer Intelligence Unit. Fishhaber reports that Nard began crying during the ride to Lapeer, and when he asked Nard why he was crying, Nard responded that he was afraid because of, quote, what he'd done to those two boys. It was this statement, made before he'd received his Miranda warning, that led police to set up a video recorder to capture his confession. Nard's mother, Bertie Maynard, is described as 40 years of age and divorced. She protests her son's innocence. He could not have done this. When you look at Kenneth Nard, who is five foot four and 100 pounds, he hardly seems capable of overpowering two boys. However, the fishing rods found at his home, a white rod with a black Zebco reel and a white rod with a black Shakespeare reel, match what the boys were carrying that day. But he insists he bought the rods from the boys that afternoon. Nard, who dropped out of high school in 1973, worked as a handyman around his Flint neighborhood. I looked up his home address, 502 East Lorado Avenue in Flint. I wanted to get a feel for where he was living in the home. Well, it's gone. Lost in the downward spiral of Flint over the last 40 years. Like many of the lots on that street, there's nothing there but trees and grass. 
Despite Kenneth Nard being a minor, he was alone at his arraignment, except for the court-appointed attorney. Nard's mother was unable to attend his arraignment because police were still searching her home for evidence. On May 21st, a shocking discovery is made in Ortonville, just a few miles from the location where Jack the Bloodhound found the bodies of the two boys. We're south now, we've gone into Oakland County. And there's another victim, 15-year-old Jeffrey Wade Walters of Ortonville, better known as Willie Walters, a sophomore at Brandon High School. He was a football player and a Boy Scout. On May 20th, Walters decided to get some fishing in before heading to the Boy Scout Jamboree that weekend in Canada. He hopped on his bike and rode less than a mile before reaching his destination, stashing his bike in the bushes before setting out to fish from a bridge over the creek. When he doesn't return home that evening, his parents go looking for him. When they cannot find Willie, they drive to the police department and make a report. This area is now patrolled by the Oakland County Sheriff, but back in 75, the department was a combination of the Ortonville Police and the Brandon Township Police. They located his bicycle around 11 p.m., and a search party of 50 men sets out looking for him. They will comb the heavily wooded area for several hours before heavy rain has them abandoning the search and seeking shelter. In the morning, they regroup, but before they can resume searching, there's a call. Walter's remains were spotted by an employee at the Pontiac Tool Company. The employee had stepped outside for a coffee break when he saw a body face down at the edge of Kearsley Creek. The creek, where Willie was fishing, ran behind the tool company. Like Hardy and Mellendorf, Walter's body was found near the river, his fishing equipment missing. But unlike Hardy and Mellendorf, Walter's was a victim of a beating and a sexual assault. Walter's partially clad body was found face down in muddy water, not far from his usual fishing spot. Upon hearing of his son's brutal murder, his father, Jeffrey Walters, collapsed and was rushed to the hospital. He will make a full recovery. Oakland County Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson tells the press that there are items in Nard's home that demonstrate a link between the double murder on Mother's Day weekend and the death of Willie Walters. Within days, Patterson's story is walked back. While all three boys were of similar ages and out fishing in remote areas when they were killed, it is unlikely that Nard killed Walters. Walters was brutally beaten and sexually assaulted. This attack doesn't look like the attack on the younger boys a week previous. Also, Willie died after 5 p.m. that Wednesday, and Nard was under police surveillance at his Flint home starting at 6.30 p.m. We're going to come back to the murder of Willie Walters later in the episode. Meanwhile, let's move on to the trial of Kenneth Nard. By June 1st, 1975, the alleged killer of the two boys is in jail, and lawyers are positioning and negotiating. The killer of Willie Walters is still at large. This community, North Oakland County, the far south end of both Genesee and Lapeer counties, they're rattled. Rattled by the deaths of three boys in a 10-day period. It's late spring, 1975, and the Oakland County child killer is still nine months and 30-some miles away from his work. They've not seen anything like this before, and people are scared. An article in the Flint Journal on July 5th, 1975, outlines the concerns of Nard's attorney, Richard Bannis. 
that Nard was arrested by Flint police the evening of May 20th and held in Flint City Jail for several hours. It was well after midnight when the teenager was transported to the Lapeer Jail, and he was interviewed beginning at 2 a.m. Vanis implied that Nard, who cannot read or write, was frightened by the interrogation and should have had a parent present. We will be talking with Attorney Bannis later in the episode. So Kenneth Nard spends his summer in jail, awaiting trial for murdering the two boys. In October, Nard's attorney wins a motion requesting that the trial be moved out of Lapeer. Judge Bagley, who is on the bench in both Lapeer and Tuscola County to the north, agrees that the case can move to the city of Cairo in Tuscola County. Bannis isn't pleased. Tuscola County uses the same news sources. His client is going to face the same problems in Tuscola County that he would have in Lapeer. Another pre-trial hearing in early December, Bannis attempts to get the confession thrown out. He also moves to block photos of the deceased boys from being shown on the big screen in the courtroom, calling the images prejudicial. The photos are from the crime scene in the morgue. Judge Bagley rules against him. When Bagley shares his ruling with the court, he informs Bannis that he himself watched the confession, and despite testimony from an expert witness that the then 17-year-old Nard lacked the intellectual capacity to understand his Miranda rights, Bagley could tell from watching that Nard understood and therefore the confession was in. Bagley said, quote, The court concludes that Mr. Nard understood what this was all about. On December 10th, Bannis files a motion asking that the county pay for Nard's defense as the family is out of money. Bannis does not disclose what the family has paid him so far, but he tells the court that almost every penny went to hiring experts and investigators to assist him in defending his client. Bannis makes this request not only to ensure that he will be paid, but to ensure that his client gets a fair trial. Bagley denied the motion, but told Bannis that he would, quote, consider paying for investigators, doctors, or expert witnesses. When Bannis tries to withdraw as counsel, since he cannot provide a proper representation without a budget, Bagley denies the request. He also won't let Bannis be paid as a court-appointed counsel because that would open up Pandora's box. Bannis counters, saying that the payment for months of work as a public defender wouldn't even cover the costs of keeping his law office open for the two to three weeks that a trial would take. But the judge is not sympathetic to Bannis's plight, and he offers him no relief. Nard's defense was expected to cost ten to fifteen thousand dollars, and that's in nineteen seventy-five money. In today's money, we're talking fifty thousand dollars. Bannis was unable to hire experts to examine Nard and to testify as to his mental and intellectual state. Just a day of testimony from one expert could cost as much as $500 in 1975. Meanwhile, Kevin's mother and sister, who didn't have much, were selling whatever they could and borrowing money trying to pay Bannis. They held fundraisers to bankroll his defense, and they did raise some money, but nowhere close to what is needed. Bannis calls in favors, and he does what he can to help his client. On December 18th, Bannis takes Bagley's ruling to the Michigan Court of Appeals. He argues that Bagley's ruling denies Bernard proper witness of counsel. When Bagley says he will, quote, consider paying for select costs, but the Court of Appeals denies Bannis's request and does not offer him any funds for the trial. 
At the end of December, Banas notifies Prosecutor Edward Meth that he may use the insanity defense for his client. In Michigan, you must advise within 10 days of the trial if you're going to use an insanity defense. This gives everyone time to prepare. To use a quote from Dr. Rogers, a Flint psychologist who examined him, Nard was a borderline mental defective with an IQ of 73. A week later, jury selection begins for the trial. Bagley cautions both attorneys, Meth and Banas, that they need to restrict what they say to the press. He tells them he's not issuing a gag order, but he reminds them that Cannon restricts attorneys from commenting publicly on the case. A panel of 100 jurors is brought in, and every potential juror has two things in common. One, they are registered to vote in Tuscola County, and two, they're white. After five full days of jury selections, a 14-person jury is seated. Two of them are alternates, but all will hear the trial. The jurors include four factory workers, a school secretary, a librarian, a farmer, a pro baseball player, a retiree, two housewives, a bus driver, a construction foreman, and a store owner. The average age of the jurors is 40. Banas is not pleased with the jury. He looks at his client, an 18-year-old black kid from a tough neighborhood in Flint, and knows that this is not a jury of his peers. And while Ronald Reagan hasn't made it a national holiday just yet, January 15th is Martin Luther King Day, and it's the first day of Nard's trial. During opening statements, Prosecutor Math asserts that then-17-year-old Kenneth Nard was physically able to kill both boys, and that Nard enlisted the help of Mark Mellendorf in murdering Scott Hardy and hanging him from a tree branch. Meth also mentions a sexual component to the murders, that the boys were molested. Later that day, when Gerald Mellendorf, Mark's father, takes the stand, he says, quote, If Mark knew something was wrong, he would not do it, and asserts that Mark would have stood up for his cousin Scott. The parents of both boys attend the trial, seated behind the prosecutor along with their siblings, children, and cousins. The next day, a witness testified that he saw three boys by the lake— but could not say for certain if they were Hardy, Mellendorf, and Nard. The witness described the black youth with the two boys as five foot eight and 150 pounds. Nard was five foot four and 100 pounds. For my metric system friends, Nard was 45 kilograms and 162 centimeters. On Tuesday, January 20th, Greg Rainey of Goodrich will testify that he saw the two boys about the same time that he saw Gerald Mellendorf arrive looking for them. Another witness says that Nard and his companions in the black and red Chevy were driving out just as Mellendorf was driving into the fishing area. Dr. Leon Baruch, the deputy medical examiner for Lapeer County, he testifies that Mark Mellendorf was likely strangled by someone using a ligature before being hung in the tree by his shirt. He will describe the ligature as a thin rope or rubberized material, which left a distinct mark on the neck a mark that differed from what you would see on his neck if he'd been hung. Mellendorf's injuries were not consistent with death by hanging, particularly that his limbs were relaxed. Baruch believed that Mark was strangled and then hung up by his shirt afterward. During Nard's confession, which was played for the jury, he did not mention using a ligature on the boys. When Scott's body was found, his pants were gone, in fact, they were discovered 175 yards, or 160 meters, away from his body. 
During the confession, Nard said he removed the boys' shirts, but didn't say anything about their pants. On January 30th, the prosecution rests, and Bannis requests a mistrial. He points out that Prosecutor Math mentioned sexual molestation in his opening statement, something that inflamed the jury, but it was never fleshed out during testimony. Math did not back up his assertion with any facts. Judge Bagley rejected the motion for a mistrial. Nard's trial continues, with Bannis doing his best to craft a defense for his client. On Monday, February 2nd, there's testimony from a 16-year-old Goodrich boy. The high school junior was the primary suspect before Nard's arrest. He's never identified by name, but he admits on the stand that he lied to the police. In fact, he admits under oath that he lied repeatedly about why he was at the lake and when he was at the lake. He testifies that he lied so they wouldn't suspect him in the case. On the day of the murders, he says he left the Toady Lake area around 5 p.m., just before the time of the murders. I would like to know the name of this kid, and I'd like to know what he's been up to for the last 40 years. During closing arguments, Bannis reminds the jury that if you believe the prosecutors, then Mark Mellendorf stood by and watched his cousin, his friend, Scott Hardy, be murdered and did nothing about it. In fact, if you believe the prosecutors, Mark may have helped. He reminds them that the medical examiner testified it's likely that Mark died before Scott. He reminded them of a lack of physical evidence linking his client to the death of the boys, of the confession obtained in the middle of the night that doesn't match what occurred at the crime scene. It's February 3rd, 1976, and the defense rests. On Thursday, February 4th, the case goes to jury. They deliberate for several hours and return with a verdict on Friday. They find Kenneth Nard guilty of second-degree murder. Bagley schedules sentencing for March 15th. Outside the courtroom, the uncle of the two murdered boys, Alvin Burkett, says, There, that's justice for you. Prosecutor Math is pleased with the outcome, and Attorney Bannis voices his frustration. When jurors are interviewed afterward, they overwhelmingly mention Nard's confession as the reason they found him guilty. One of the jurors, on the condition of anonymity, says that when deliberations started, three or four jurors were leaning toward not guilty. But the other jurors swayed them. After all, Nard did confess. Without the confession, there's not much of a case. The trial concludes ten days before the first victim of the Oakland County child killer disappears in Ferndale, Michigan. On March 15th, Kenneth Nard is back in court for sentencing. Judge Bagley hands down two life sentences— Bagley goes on to emphasize that because Nard has shown no remorse for his actions, quote, I will do everything in my power to make sure you do not get parole. As of this writing, Kenneth Nard remains in prison, serving two life sentences. And while I cannot speak to his guilt or innocence, I can say that I do not feel he was given a fair trial, and I believe that Judge Bagley, who went to his own judgment at the age of 85 in 2015, had a lot to do with Nard's trial not being as equitable as it could have been. Kenneth Nard, who turned 60 years old on October 16, 2017, is now 5'8", 165 pounds, larger than he was when he entered the criminal justice system in the summer of 1975. He is incarcerated at the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility near Ionia. You think that would be the end of it, the end of the case, but I came across another article from August of 1976. 
Nard's friends, the ones from Flint who turned him in, they requested their share of the reward. Since they led law enforcement to Nard, Flint police detective Michael Ahern was quoted in that article. He advocated for rewarding those who came forward. Just this week, I connected with the retired detective, and he confirmed that yes, the reward money went to the tipsters. Before we return to our third victim, Brandon High School sophomore Willie Walters, I would like to share with you some excerpts from my conversation with defense attorney Richard Bannis. To get started, let me give you some points that uh, you probably are not aware of because of the newspaper. It probably wasn't in the newspaper, and maybe we can go from there. That's great. Uh, First of all, there was an awful lot of tension when these bodies were found uh, because somehow the rumor got started and it was pretty pervasive that the bodies that they were hung and gutted like deer. Oh, God. Yeah, and that was pretty pervasive, I mean, throughout the whole community. So that started, you know, a pretty bad atmosphere to start with. So we had to overcome come that kind of tension throughout the preliminary exam, etc. The second thing uh, I would point out is that the area where the bodies were found were so trampled, uh, right. so there was no way to try to reconstruct what actually happened by way of footprints, foot castings, etc. And second of all, uh, the area where the bodies were found had been uh, passed by several times in the search over the couple of days that the bodies were found. So uh, you had the question of that whole crime scene, whether or not that was actually uh, perhaps the crime scene. And maybe the boys were put there later. Right. Right, or who did it, or whether Nard had help, or anything of of that nature. The third thing that uh, I think I can point out was, well, I'll just go by parts of this. The big thing in this case was, of course, I think that confession should have been suppressed. The pressure that was put on this young man was unbelievable, and the number of hours he was questioned, and his IQ was so low, it was unbelievable. I think it was second or third grade. I can't really remember, but it was awful, awful low. He had an IQ, according to the newspaper, of 73, which is right on the borderline, to use a term from the 1970s, he was considered borderline mentally retarded. That sounds familiar. Okay. In fact, I had uh, one of the psychiatrists that kind of helped me without funding, a uh, great Dr. Grayer. We tried to hypnotize Nard several times, and... The doctor said, we, you know, he was just too low a IQ even to hypnotize. So we were confronted with that problem. And, of course, I was always fighting problems with uh, trying to get money for experts. And I, I don't remember how it came about, but I finally got it. And we had Dr. Rogers uh, testify for the defense. So we had an awful long time trying to pull that kind of money, though. Going back to his confession, what jumped out to me is that they had him under surveillance, according to the newspaper, at 6, 6.30 that night. They picked him up at 8.30, took him to the Flint police and put him in a detention room. And Flint held him until 1.30 or 2 a.m. when the Lapeer sheriff picked him up. Then they yeah, drove what, him to Lapeer and Mirandized him. Yeah, that's that's correct. Now, as I refer, of course, you know, for that long a period of time, I don't have that kind of recollection. 
One of the questions I had for you, they moved the trial to Cairo, but that was not where you wanted it moved to. Where did you hope they would move the trial to? Um, somewhere towards the, you know, anywhere in the Detroit area. Okay, so Oakland County or, or Wayne County. Yeah. And then one of the questions I had, and it was just one little paragraph in one little article, but it stuck out to me, was that when you presented, when the defense presented their case, you called a 16-year-old boy from Goodrich. He was their number one suspect up until Nard was identified by his companion. Do you remember anything about that kid or why he was I just suspect? remember that I just remembered that he was under surveillance by the police for several instances and that he was always showing up like when the newspapers were delivered to newsstands. Uh, always in interjecting himself in the investigation and and surrounding him like he was always looking for things that were involved in this case. And he was always showing up at various sites that the police were at. And that's very suspicious behavior. Oh, yeah. And the police claimed they gave him a polygraph and then wrote, they wrote it off and quit oh. investigating him. I'm assuming he passed his polygraph? Yes, I, I believe so. Well, and we know now, in hindsight, that a lot of people pass polygraphs that are guilty, and a lot of people oh. fail polygraphs that aren't. Oh, yeah, that's, I'm well aware of that. In reading about the case, it seemed like Judge Bagley was, I don't want to say hostile, but I'll say he was difficult. It just seemed like he was very hard on you during this trial, and it doesn't sound like that was in character for him, or was it? I don't know if it was in character with him or, or not. Uh, I know uh, his attitude really seemed to change towards the end of the trial, where he seemed to be more sympathetic to me. In fact, he told me off the record that he wished he could have paid me, but uh, he couldn't because there weren't enough funds. So he changed his attitude with the but the defense had presented, I think, and privately. Right. Off, yeah. Off. Not in open court. Another question I have, which you may not have an answer for, there was another murder in the same area at the same time, but it was right. in Oakland County. It was just right, over in the Oakland border. County, yeah. They tried to hang that on Kenneth, and then they couldn't. That's right. And then they ended up arresting a, a local boy for it. Yes. An Oakland County boy. Did, do you think that sort of identical case made it harder for you or, or made your trial more challenging? Well, I really can't say yes or no other than, you know, the part of that atmosphere was there about the fear of what was going on and things of that nature, but I really can't say it made it more difficult. Okay. But I think I think it's safe to say that people were scared. Oh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. You primarily practiced in the Flint area? Yes. I read somewhere in the paper that you had experience working with other African-American families, which is how the Nards came to seek you to represent yeah. their son. Yeah, I had a very good rapport with the, with the black community, and uh, that's where that referral came. Is there anything else that you can tell me that may help people have a better understanding of what was going on at the time? Well... A couple, couple of things that I can point out. I don't know whether how much relevancy it is to you or not. But during the trial in the opening statement, the prosecutor made a big deal that the boys were sexually molested. 
I caught that. Yeah. I caught that that you asked for a mistrial because right. you brought up the sexual molestation and then didn't prove it. Right. He never asked a question regarding it and tried to prove it at all. And I believe the pathologist said definitely there was no sexual molestation, which I think really set a, a tenor for the trial, really prejudicing the case. You know, when you're sitting on a jury and you hear this kind of stuff that's even left at such a young age by such a young person, it really puts the defense in a very negative, negative position. Yeah, I, I really felt like you were incredibly disadvantaged, but also I saw a lot of the advocacy that you were doing and the maneuvering that you were doing, trying to keep things as equitable for your client as you could. Well, I believe I tried and gave the best defense I possibly could. Well, really, the case, though, to me, that really turned on the question bothers me is the pathologist uh, testified that the boys were not hung, that they were strangled in a Garrett-type fashion right. uh, with a ligature no greater than the one-sixteenth of an inch, which got completely is different than Denard Confession. Yes. And I don't think he had the strength to be able to do it. And he was such a diminutive uh, individual that I had trouble believing anything uh, about these boys being afraid of him to such an extent that they, you know, they were close cousins from what everything that everybody said, that they would help help him kill each other. In fact, you know, climbing the trees, that kind of stuff, cutting them down, moving them to the river and things of that nature. I just don't see how they would have been intimidated by him. No, and to remind listeners, Kenneth at the time of his arrest was five foot four inches tall and 100 pounds. Right. I and, would say that was about right. Yeah, and as a grown man, he's he'll be 60 next month. And he, as a grown man, is five foot eight and 160 pounds. He's not a big guy. No, not at all. So, and you mentioned in our conversation yesterday that his family was very nice. You know, he came from a poor family, but they were not difficult people or bad people. No, not at all. The mother, the only contact I really had with the family was with the mother, uh, and she was just a super, super nice lady. I would say, very concerned, very, very caring. You know, poor but very nice. When. He was initially arraigned the morning after his arrest. His mother couldn't be at court with him because they were still searching the house in Flint, and she was afraid right. to leave the house. So he went through right. that by himself. Yes. One of the witnesses that I had was a, uh, a guy from U of M. We kind of did a reenactment of the crime, uh, bought sweaters which were identical in size and brand and everything uh, that the boys were supposedly hung by and built kind of a scaffold and put on a, a, a weight that was similar to the, the boys, it was clear that their feet would have completely touched the ground, uh, you know, that would, would have been self-supporting. And also uh, that one of the boys who was found hung in the tree, he died in a completely relaxed attitude and... If he were hung in the way that Nard says he was, I believe he would have died in, uh, you know, a pugilistic attitude and would have had uh, 
scrapings from a tree and everything in his fingernails, you know, from that instead of dying with his arms relaxed. I recall reading something about that and that the, the ligature marks on their throats did not match what it would have looked like had they been hung. The angle right. of the curve on their neck would have been more of a U-shape if they had been hung, but this was a, a C-shape because they'd been garroted. Right. That was also very concerning to me that the the scene looked staged. Well, that's part of the thing because when when they were basically when the bodies were found, there were some, you know three or four police agencies that were involved, and that whole scene there was was completely trampled. You know, where I couldn't be able to find, you know, footprints or castings to verify uh, what Nard said or discredit it because the whole scene was pretty well a shambles. Was there ever, and you may not recall, so forgive me, but was there ever sure. any explanation? I believe it was Scott's pants were almost 200 yards away. Was there ever any explanation or theory for why his pants were so far away from the scene? No. Because that, to me, seemed so strange. Yes, that is strange. Especially, you know, I mean, it's really bothered me through the years, this pathologist's testimony that completely contradicts the way uh, Kenneth said uh, he committed this crime. Absolutely. And that, that was what jumped but out to me researching. Yeah. Pathologists also testified, as I recall, the, uh, contrary to Nard's statement, that the boy who died first, in fact, died second, just the just the reverse of what Nard said. Do you recall if there was supposed to be a gap between when the two boys died, like an hour, or was it no? Okay, I wondered. It was a warm, you know, it was a warm spring night, and I was wondering how they could tell so precisely that this one died and then that one died. Uh, I don't recall how the pathologist came up with that uh, theory. That's the way, as I recall, the testimony came out. Oh, one other thing that I yes. think was really prejudicial. During the trial, they had, uh, you know, films of, uh, or photographs of the autopsy yeah. report. Yeah. And they showed them on basically an 8 by I don't know what it was, an 8 by 10 or 8 by 8 you know, it's a big screen where it was bigger, bigger than the boys were. You know, and to have that shocking autopsy photograph viewed by a jury was just horrendous. Sometimes they show them in a way that the gallery can't see it, but were they shown so that everybody could see it? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I may try to make a big deal out of that because, I mean, here, you know, you're looking at the jury's looking at these photographs, and they're life-size. Yeah. So I've never had anything, you know, the judge usually go, you know, goes to pretty good extremes in trying to protect the jury from, you know, being shocked by these photographs and autopsy findings and things of that nature, but nope, he let it in. I can't think of a good reason that anyone would need to see those pictures. No, there was no reason, there was no reason, uh, they even having to show any any photographs. You know, what was there was there. There wasn't any, any findings that couldn't have been just testified to without being demonstrated to them other than to prejudice uh, and shock, shock the jury. I, it must have been incredibly upsetting to see that for everyone who was present. Oh, yeah. It was upsetting to me after looking at him and knowing all these 
the things here with the autopsy and that, and then to see it like that portrayed on a big screen, pretty shocking. The jury, I thought it was interesting that they called in 100 registered voters to be paneled for the jury, and the jury wasn't anything like Kenneth. No, not at all. He was not a, at all. a young, illiterate black kid from the poor side of Flint, which is saying something. And right. this was a white, rural, suburban community. The average yeah, age of the jurors yeah. was 40. Yeah. And there's yeah, I had a real bad battle in trying to pick a jury that I thought would be sympathetic towards, it, or towards our defense. Because it was just an old, white, farming people. Yeah. I noticed you had a couple of school employees, I think a teacher and a school secretary, and, and I thought those were good choices because they may have had students like kind of. Right. Yeah, I don't really remember much about the jury pool right now. Okay. Mr. Bannis, I am so, one, impressed that how much you remember about this case and, again, how hard you worked on behalf of your client under difficult circumstances. And two, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you very much. You know, that was a pretty shocking case going on and kind of hard to forget. And, you know, I still have reservations because of you know, the issues that I discussed with you about the case. And uh, I just tried to present the best defense I could for him. And uh, it was pretty heartbreaking because, you, know, you know, I had young children at the time. And I remember once my wife points out to me that, I basically sat in the front yard with my kids uh, crying in a tree and I'm trying to think, oh my God, how could this happen? You know, them kids should just be kids. Yeah, that was tough. I can imagine. Just had to do what I had to do, you know. And you did well. I What I read in the Flint Journal, I was just frustrated for you because I really felt I could see how hard you were working to make this fair. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your time. Let's return to the murder of Willie Walters in Ortonville. Remember, he was attacked a few days after Mark and Scott were murdered. Willie Walters was killed in Oakland County, which is under the jurisdiction of the prosecutor, L. Brooks Patterson, and the medical examiner, Robert Sillery. His name keeps coming up in these cases. Thursday, May 22nd, 1975. It's the second time in as many weeks that the Flint Journal's cover story involves a murdered child. Walter's body was discovered face down in a muddy creek. His remains splattered with muck from the heavy rain. His body was discovered about five miles as the crow flies from the chilling scene at Toady Lake a week prior. They had few clues, few leads, and a community in fear. After his body was recovered, divers searched the creek, looking for additional clues. But all they found was Walter's fishing gear. It had washed down the creek with the heavy rains. Oakland County Detective Richard Hubble was quoted in the paper five days after the murder, that they had run down all of their leads and they were against the wall in the Williams case. A frustrating situation to be in, especially that early on. Hubble and his team at the Oakland County Sheriff worked the Williams case, but the double murder at Toady Lake was under the jurisdiction of the Lapeer County Sheriff. 
I was able to speak with a gentleman who worked for Brandon Township Police in 1975, and he told me that the local cops were working the case as well. He also told me that the community was shaken. Ortonville and Brandon Township, it was a small community, close-knit. And things like this don't happen here. In June, officials with the city of Ortonville put up a $1,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for Walter's death. Local businesses chipped in, and that amount grew. In June, the school year ends and summer moves on, moves on without answers for the Walters family. They will wait several weeks until a second attack in August brings new information for the case. August 22, 1975. A small article appears in the paper. Man charged after assault with golf club. Which doesn't sound anything like Walter's Creekside murder. John G. Schra of Ortonville is charged with beating 16-year-old William J. Brown of Goodrich. Both worked at the Goodrich Golf Club. The two had gone into the woods looking for golf balls when Shra attacked Brown, striking him in the head several times with a club. Brown was transported to St. Joe's Hospital in Pontiac, where he was treated for a depressed skull fracture. I had to look this up. A depressed skull fracture is when the skull is broken or pressed downward toward the brain, which is what I suspect would happen if you were struck in the head forcefully by a golf club. Just, you don't need to Google it. Just trust me on that. Don't Google depressed skull fracture. On August 23rd, Oakland County Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson cannot pat himself on the back hard enough. He's quoted in the paper as saying, We're sure we have our man. He also described the attack on Brown and the murder of Willie Walters as gruesomely similar. Patterson's office issues a first-degree murder warrant for John Schraw. Schraw allegedly confessed to officers in Goodrich and later to members of the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office that he was the one who killed Willie Walters. Meanwhile, Brown remains hospitalized in the intensive care unit at St. Joe's. He will spend nearly a week in the hospital. Brown can speak, and he tells police that after the attack, Schraw said, quote, I thought you were the one who killed the boy. And then Schraw offered Brown a new set of golf clubs if Brown wouldn't tell anyone about the assault. Meanwhile, in Ortonville, which is to this day a relatively small community, people are talking. Did they know Schraw? He was a graduate of Brandon High School, and he had no criminal record. He did have a younger brother who was preparing for his senior year at Brandon High School when John was arrested. Once again, the Brandon High School principal steps up. He does not want the younger Shra to suffer because of his brother's actions. And he reassures families that they will do their best to protect him from any ugliness when school resumes in September. Because Willie Walters came from such a large family, he was one of seven children, I imagine that some of his siblings will also be at Brandon High School that fall. Willie's mother, Margaret Walters, pays a visit to the Shra family. She wanted to help them through what is undoubtedly a challenging time. Mrs. Walters' visit is a beautiful act of kindness and compassion, something we don't see much of in these stories. 
So John Schraw is facing murder charges in Oakland County and assault charges in Genesee County. He's transferred back and forth between the counties for various hearings. During Schraw's arraignment on the murder charge, Judge Gerald McNally urged Patterson to use discretion when commenting publicly on the case. McNally said he would prefer not to move the trial at great expense to taxpayers. And Patterson responds that the case generated its own publicity. On September 9th, Schra's preliminary hearing is a very tense affair. Emotions were running high for the Walters family. At one point, Willie's sister reached across the bar, separating spectators from the proceedings, and she grabbed Schra's hair. Deputies swept in and removed her from court. James Walters, Willie's father, he testified, and when he stepped down afterward, he hesitated in front of the defense table, his fists clenched. Shra, who spent much of the day staring at the table, did not look up, and Walters moved on. Concerned for Shra's safety, deputies waited until the Walters family departed to transport the prisoner back to jail. Unfortunately, the hearing wasn't complete. Brandon Township Police Chief Thomas Quisenberry, he'd been injured while responding to a house fire. He'd broken his elbow and cracked some ribs, so the hearing is adjourned so he can recover enough to testify. Meanwhile, Shra's attorneys are trying to get the first-degree murder charges reduced to second-degree murder. The attorney argues that the murder was not premeditated, and therefore doesn't meet the standard for first-degree. Prosecutors countered that since Shra sexually assaulted Walters and then murdered him, he was killed to conceal the assault, making it first-degree murder. Genesee and Oakland counties were working together on this case, as well as watching what the other one was doing. If Shra received a lengthy sentence for the assault, perhaps a plea could be worked out for the murder charge. But John Shra surprised everyone by pleading guilty to second-degree murder charges during jury selection for his trial in Oakland County. He receives a sentence of life in prison with possibility of parole in 10 to 13 years. Shra, who has one of the scariest prisoner photos I have ever seen, remains incarcerated at the Kinross Correctional Center, a low-to-medium-security facility in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You can view Shra's picture and other photos related to this case on my website at www.alreadyonpodcast.com. These episodes are not created in a vacuum. I get a lot of help and support from others. Big thank you to Charlie from the Insight Podcast for her wisdom and support. And if you aren't listening to Insight, you should be. They're fantastic. Thank you to my friend Lisa for sharing the story of Mark Mellendorf and Scott Hardy, which in turn led me to Willie Walters. Thank you to Richard Banas, both because you fought for your client to get a fair trial and for sharing your insights on this case with us 40 years later. Another thank you to retired Flint homicide detective Michael Ahern for speaking with me as well. One more thank you, this time to the good people at the Genesee District Library. Without their research assistance, I could not have told this story. If you are in the Cincinnati area, I will be attending the History Dweebs Meetup in Cincy the weekend of October 13th. That's this week. On Saturday, October 14th, join us at The Rook in OTR at 8 p.m. It's located at 1115 Vine Street. Come by, say hi. I'd love to see you. 
Please support the show by visiting our sponsor, Blue Apron, and celebrate five years of better cooking with $30 off your first meal and free shipping. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Stay tuned for a look at one of my favorite indie podcasts, The Fall Line. It's a long-form podcast focused on the 1990 disappearance of Augusta, Georgia twins, Danat and Janet Milbrook. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Fall Line Podcast is a true crime audio serial focusing on marginalized communities in Georgia. The first season investigates the March 18, 1990 disappearance of Augusta, Georgia twins Jeanette and Jeanette Milbrook. The twins, who were 15 at the time, were treated without cause as runaways, and their case was closed less than a week after their 17th birthday. Now, our podcast works to amplify the voices of the twins' family and to uncover facts, explore and dispel rumors, and develop theories in their case. Season 1.5, Out This Fall, will cover the case of missing Brunswick, Georgia siblings Monica and Michael Bennett, who disappeared in 1989. Join us as we work in real time to investigate their case.